0: Well, we're back in Thessalonians. We'll be in chapter four in a moment. We'll pick up where we left off about eight weeks ago uh, before you set me free for a nice long rest and everything. But I think we should have a word of prayer uh, first. Dear Heavenly Father, we're going to open your word. Uh, Please grant us the faith to accept the Bible that we have in front of us as your word. Supernaturally delivered, yes, to human writers, uh, but some way supernaturally Uh, We know that these are the words that you desired uh, for us to have. Uh, We believe that when we read the Bible, we're reading your words. When we hear the Bible, we're hearing you speak. Uh, May we take that seriously. May we not take it lightly. I pray that your word would pierce our inner person, uh, that it would not just be another religious exercise of soaking up some information, uh, but that we would hear you speaking to us. Uh, And calling us to action, Uh, cleansing us, purifying us, instructing us, leading us uh, together uh, uh, in what we consider to be holy scripture. Uh, So we praise you. We thank you. We give you all the honor and the glory uh, that you and you alone deserve in Jesus name. Amen. So first Thessalonians chapter four, Got my Bible all over the place. I thought I had my marker there, but. In Ecclesiastes, which is also good. Uh, First Thessalonians chapter four, verses one and two. He says, Paul says to these churches. Remember, Thessaloniki is modern-day Greece. There were a lot of churches there. Uh, remember, this is perhaps the best church or group. Remember, it wasn't just one church. There were groups of churches. They would pass the letters around uh, that the apostles wrote and they would be read. But this church is perhaps the best church, the model church uh, for us. Uh, Paul had nothing but good things to say about these folks. So we want to keep that in mind. Chapter four, verse one, first Thessalonians. Oh, and if you don't have an outline, uh, you may be a little lost. The ushers out there, uh, if you could grab them, Habib, and see if there's any extra outlines uh, because you might want to take some notes. If you don't want to take notes, you're not going to offend me. That's fine. Uh, but uh, if you want an outline to follow along, just raise your hand. And I think there's some extra. So uh, you might be a little lost if you don't have it. And they'll give you one. Here he comes. Uh, chapter four, verse one says, finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. That as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk. Remember, the word walk in the New Testament means to live how you ought to live your life and please God, just as you are actually doing. You are living to please God, but that you excel still more for, you know, what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So we want to look at some characters here first, uh, if you want to put these up. Let's see how well. Now, wow! That is an awesome picture, isn't it? Yeah. Anyone recognize those World Series champions? I do. The, oh, the Chicago Cubs. It is blue. Maybe not your favorite blue, but now I like the Dodgers too. But uh, yeah, I do. These are Cubs colors and Dodger colors. But anyway, I get a little confused uh, here. So, what's next? So, World Series champions. Who's that? Who is it? Albert Einstein. Einstein. Don't you dare say one of our elders at the church because that's not. Yeah. So he was a scientist, right? Okay, just keep going. There's a common link here. Uh, Who is that? Julia Child. Now, you know, I love to eat and I love to cook. So uh, I think that was her husband. Wow. Who's that? You know, I love tennis. John McEnroe. He was such an even keeled, gentle person uh, on the court. Yeah. So John McEnroe, what else do we have? I think we have a few more. Yeah. The greatest of all time, huh? So that's what he said anyway. Uh, but uh, is there anything else or is that it? I can't remember. Oh, I think that's the last one. Yeah. Vincent Van Gogh, right? A, a great artist. So. So what is that it? I can't remember what I even put on there. Oh, we'll do that in a minute. So go back to Vincent. Uh We'll come back to the other one later. But so what do all those people have in common? Weren't they all outstanding in their fields? Didn't they all excel in what they do? They were known to be the best in what they did. Muhammad Ali in boxing and Jewish child and cooking and the, you know, Cubs and Dodgers and others, you know, in baseball. I mean, they excelled people who excel in what they do. So we want to stop and ask ourselves. Why do some people excel in what they do? Why do they become the best? Uh, Because they're more than dedicated. Uh, They're driven to be the best. There's something within them that just compels them and drives them to be the very best that they can be. Because we know that being the best, some of you know, because some of you are pretty good at things that you do. Hobbies or or vocation or whatever it is. But it takes hard work to be the best to excel, doesn't it? Extreme self-discipline, even mind-boggling sacrifice to excel and be the best. And we ask ourselves, why do these people do it? How do they do it? Uh, there's something within them that drives them to excel. And Paul touches on the same thing in a moment. We'll see. But I think that that ingredient is desire. Desire, desire is what drives people to excel and do extraordinary things, their commitment, their dedication, their sacrifice. They have that passion. It just consumes them, becomes their preoccupation. Twenty four seven. It's all they think about in every single small detail. And they're not going to allow anything or anyone to stand in their way of excelling and being the very best. So what we pursue, keep this in mind, what we pursue is what we desire. Now, think about that for a moment, even if we're not consciously pursuing. We may not be an athlete or a scholar or an artist, but we may be pursuing something with reckless abandon, and we do that because we desire What we desire is what we make our priority. We're willing to sacrifice. We're willing to stop at nothing to get whatever it is that we desire. And, you know, there's a word for that in the scriptures. It's called worship. It's called worship. Do you realize that desire could be a synonym for worship? What I desire, what drives me to pursue whatever it is I pursue Is action an act of worship on my part? You say, well, what do I worship? Well, I worship whatever I have made my priority to pursue. That's just a fact. That's just a fact. Each of us was created by God to be a worshiper. It's not if we worship. It's we will worship. So therefore, what will we worship? Even the wicked man who has rejected Christ, who doesn't believe in God, that wicked man is a worshiper. Because he too was created in the image of God. He was created with an innate desire to worship, to pursue something, to direct his desires toward attaining something. Have you ever talked to an addict? Have you ever talked to an addict? Anyone who's addicted to any kind of chemical substance or we don't have time to talk about or a non-chemical substance addiction. Yeah. Food. Have you ever talked to an addict? Do you realize. Okay, rabbit in my mind, I'm seeing a rabbit trail, but I'm going to try to control myself here. Okay. The world says addiction, you know, the scripture calls. What's the synonym for addiction? Worship. Worship. Addiction is worship. When you think about it, what does an addict do? An addict acts like a worshiper. He's completely sold out, utterly committed and consumed. He'll stop at nothing to get what he wants to attain his desire. That is worship. Now, granted, it's misplaced worship because created in the image of God. He was created to worship God, which he refuses to do, but he must worship worship. He must go somewhere for help and for hope and for comfort. So he pursues what he thinks will bring that. But by the way, addiction is a lie. Addiction is a trap. Uh, Addiction always makes promises it can't keep. That's very that's the trap of addiction. Think about neurosis. Think about psychosis. Think about some of these struggles. Someone controlled by fear. Is worshipping safety. Someone controlled by anger. Is worshipping control. The person who is controlled by insecurity. Is worshipping approval and praise. You see. We were created to worship. It's not if we worship. It's what and how we worship. Because desire drives us. Desire drives us. The Apostle Paul was a driven man. We read that in Philippians earlier this morning. He says there he was compelled to excel in pleasing God. And what drove him to excel in pleasing God was his desire to know Christ. That's going to be an important principle here in a moment. Now let's see the next slide. Anyone know who this is? And no, that's not one of those future snapshots that they do. You know, or that's a pastor in 20 years. Uh, uh, oh, I wish. Look at that hair. That may be a wig, though. That's the 1700. I'm not opposed to wigs. So know. Anyone know this is my spiritual hero? Jonathan Edwards. Well, yeah. Well, you live with your spiritual hero, so you knew who <laughs> that was. So, yeah, Jonathan Edwards. Perhaps the greatest theologian, the greatest philosopher, the greatest intellectual that America has ever produced. He lived 1703 to 1750 something. I can't remember. I think 1758 in Massachusetts. He was a pastor, a writer, uh, a preacher. Greatest ever in America, probably. And his influence is even still felt today. There are whole schools dedicated to studying the doctrines of Jonathan Edwards, right? But underlying drive for Jonathan Edwards, what was the underlying drive or motive for him to have this lasting impact? It was not just devotion to his profession. You can't be so dedicated that you're willing to sacrifice everything by just being merely dedicated to your profession. But it was his insatiable thirst for God. And for all the things concerning God, Uh, listen to how he describes himself after he came to Jesus Christ. Uh, Of course, it's in his language, and I'll try to maybe tweak it a little bit. Uh, It's language from the 1700s. But he says this about his thirst for God after he came to know Christ. He said, my mind was greatly fixed now on divine things, almost perpetually. In the contemplation of them at all times, I spent almost all of my time thinking about divine things year after year, often walking alone in the woods, all alone in solitary places for meditation, soliloquy and prayer and conversing with God. And it was always my manner at such times because I was so filled with joy and divine things to sing forth about the things I was thinking about. I almost constantly burst forth in prayer. Wherever I was, prayer now seemed to me to be so natural, just like the breath by which the inward burnings of my heart could ventilate itself. The delights which I now felt in those things of God and religion were so exceedingly different from those kinds of things that I pursued before when I was younger, when I had no more notion of what it meant to be a follower of God than someone who is blind knows What it means to see beautiful colors. These were now more inward, pure soul animating and refreshing to me. Those former delights that I pursued had never reached into my heart and they did not arise from any sight that I had of the divine and excellent things of God. But now my soul was tasting the satisfaction and the life giving good things of God. I mean, that's pretty flowery. But what drove him To have an impact that's lasted over 300 years. It was his hunger and his thirst for God. It's desire for God that Paul was trying to bring to the forefront of the Thessalonians minds. If you look there at chapter four, verses one and two. The Apostle Paul was urging the Thessalonian Christians. He's urging all of us to excel in Christian living more and more. But here's an important point that we have to remember. It's only when we consciously nurture our relationship with God and have a resolute longing for God that we will be able to attain the kind of spiritual progress that Paul had in mind. I think he's writing this because he sees a particular danger to Christians. Not those who are not Christians. It's not who he's talking to. There's a particular danger because this is a good church. This is a sound church. He commends them throughout this letter. You're doing good. You're doing good. You're doing good. But now here he's saying you need to excel still more. And we may be tempted. Geesh, what's this guy's problem? We're, we're doing pretty good here. He told us we were doing good. And now he's telling us he wants us to do even better. Wow. Some people are never Satisfied. And then Paul says, that's it. You got it. You should never be satisfied because there's a particular danger for Christians to think that there's no need to progress in the Christian life. This side of eternity, I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven. I believe in Jesus. So what's the big deal? Get off my back. I've got my fire insurance. I know where I'm going. What's the big deal? They may have been tempted, even though a good, strong church, they may have been tempted because even the strongest follower of Christ can be tempted to settle for the spiritual status quo. And boy, there's a lot of spiritual status quo in our country today. We must never think there is no room for improvement in the Christian life. So what is the key to excelling for God? The key is to excel in God and to excel for God. Think about it this way. Why do we get spiritually lazy? Why do we get apathetic? Why do we get sloppy? Why do we drop out of church? Why do we not go to Bible study? Why do we not do any of those things? Any spiritual malady can be remedied by having a desire for God. We do the things we do because we desire God. If we try to do things for God without desire for God, then those things are just going to become empty and shallow and meaningless and religious. (coughs) Excuse me. In religious with no heartfelt anything behind it. Desire for God has to be the driving motivation for the Christian life. So four elements. To develop a desire for God to pursue spiritual things, Paul presents here, and these are not my own. I stole these from someone you may have heard of, Dr. John MacArthur. Uh, I did tweak these and wrestle with them and fashion them, but the uh, initial thoughts are not my own. First of all, on your outlines, the priority of excelling. Paul says, finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you that you excel still more. What does it mean to excel? Well, the word literally means to abound or to be abundantly supplied. I like the idea. It means to overflow, to exist in full quantity, to be advanced. It actually means to be extraordinary. Does that describe your Christian walk? When someone says, oh, do you know, uh, I'm going to pick on you, Ron. OK, did you take it? Do you know, Ron Muir? Oh, yeah, I know, Ron. Well, why do you ask that? That man seems to be an extraordinary Christian. Is, is that what people say about you? Or do they say, Christian, is he a Christian? Oh, wow. That's a, oh, that's surprising, really. No, they don't say that about you. That's for sure. But Paul, that's what he's telling them. That's what he's telling us. I expect you to not just be the status quo Christian. I want you. And notice that he says gently. Paul gets a bad rap sometimes. as like this guy that carries this wooden club and he bangs people over the head, you know. But he's being very gentle here. He says, I request. And then exhort. Which exhort is more than admonishment, less than a rebuke. And it carries the idea of. He's talking to them as an equal. He's saying, this is my desire for myself. This is my desire for you that you not accept the status quo of being a Christian. I want you to be an extraordinary Christian. The Apostle Paul's desire for these Christians and for us is to become spiritually extraordinary. Excelling at a higher In higher degree. In other words, not settling. For just the ordinary average, what everyone else is doing, what everyone else is like in their faith. But to keep pressing on, as he said about himself, keep reaching for more, uh, not settling for less. And we're going to see more and more. What specifically does that mean? Because that's kind of a generic statement. Secondly. The second principle that we want to try to practice if we want to pursue excellence in our spiritual lives is to think about the power for excelling. He says there in verse one in the Lord Jesus. And by the way, if you're into language and verbs and words like some of us are that word, it, those words in the Lord Jesus Are pointing back to the word you. I want you in the Lord Jesus and the words request and exhort. I request of you in the Lord Jesus. I exhort you in the Lord Jesus. So he's using his authority here. When Paul speaks, it's Jesus speaking. A lot of people have a problem with that today. When the Bible speaks, it's God speaking. When the apostle speaks, it's God speaking. And there are no more apostles today, okay? There are some who say that they're apostles. The book is closed. There were only twelve, well, thirteen. One, you know, and then they replaced them. So, so. But we know. But we know. He's he's talking about authority. A lot of us Christians struggle with accepting the authority of Scripture. We accept it for the things that are easy and the things that we like. But when the scriptures make demands on our life that don't quite mesh with what we're trying to do, then we start to have a problem with the authority. But we might be tempted to try to do things for God from our own power. To try to please God with our own good works or within our own exertion. But he's saying, I want you to excel using the power of. That comes from belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are in Christ. You are one of his children. And his priority was that their spiritual progress, like we've been talking about, would be motivated by a desire to know God. And I guess if we take nothing else out of here today, we want to make sure we take this. Spiritual progress that is pleasing to God has to be motivated by a desire to know God, not a desire to impress people, not a desire to feel good about myself, not a desire to be involved in church, a desire to be in ministry. It's not that I'm a prayer warrior or that I'm at church every time the doors are open or, you know, that I'm doing this. Those things are all good things. But if those things aren't linked to a desire to know God more, then those things are worthless, and there will be no spiritual progress. Do you see the scriptural pattern? I even drew a couple little arrows. Well, technology, I just now wrote them. Desire for God leads to spiritual progress. It's not the other way around. And, and I guess what I'm trying to say. If we're struggling with just being complacent with our spiritual life, lazy, if we've let things go, if uh, if we're just, you know, sloppy and we think, how do we fix that? We fix it where we go to fix those kinds of spiritual struggles is we go right to the root, right to the source, right to the fountain where everything flows out of. And that is a love for God. Because it will fix any spiritual struggle. And you may be looking at some of you are looking at me like. Coo-coo. What's with this guy? He's he doesn't know what he's talking about. I am telling you, if your marriage is in trouble, you start by desiring God. If your finances are in trouble, where do you start? You start with desiring God. You know, any, any problem, any struggle, anything of a spiritual nature. Where do we start? We start with making sure our ultimate deepest, greatest desire is to love God and know God. I'm telling you, I've seen it in my own life, I've seen it in many lives. The psalmist said, and this, uh, I was surprised, you know, I've been a Christian for 45 years and I was looking at this this week and I thought, oh, King David didn't write Psalm 42. (laughs) It was attributed to the sons of Korah, so I had to go back. Anyway, you don't care about that. I found that fascinating. I mean, we automatically think the Psalms. David wrote all the Psalms. No, he didn't write all the Psalms. So and that's important. But another day. All right. As the deer pants for the water brooks, the psalmist says, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and see God? Psalm 34, eight, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. A lot of us don't have an appetite for God and the things of God because we've never even really tasted enough of him to see how wonderful it is. And I guarantee you, the more we feast on God, the hungrier we get for him. The more we drink of the things of God, being in his presence, in his word, being alone with him, just enjoying the fellowship we have with him, it makes us want more. And it sets our mind right. It sets our hearts right. That's why we go back to that as the solution. Psalm 631. Oh, God, you can read it with me. Oh, God, you are my God. I shall seek you early. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. See, that's talking about the inner man, the inner person. What drives the psalmist? What motivates the psalmist? What pushes the psalmist You know, to even exist. I mean, his whole reason for existing and living is to be with God. I think we get distracted by all the things that we think we should and could do for God. And we forget the God whom we serve. And that's the priority. So for all Jesus followers... The pursuit of knowing God is the basic component of spiritual growth. So to grow in my spiritual life, I first of all have to have that desire to know and please God. It can't be an academic exercise. It can't be a religious exercise. And I think that's why some of us come to church on Sundays and we have that look on our face like, do you know how many things I'm missing to be here? You know, know, for some people, this is the last place they want to be. But, but I think that's connected with that desire and that thirst and that hunger for God. And that's where it starts. We want to caution ourselves, as we've already mentioned, if gaining more information about the Bible and just participating in spiritual activities like praying and Bible study, church service, serving, witnessing, if those things are not linked to the desire to know God better, they will not bring spiritual growth. Even to those who profess faith in Christ, they'll merely become empty, hollow, meaningless activities to the believer, to the believer. Doesn't take your salvation away. We're still bound for heaven. But what we're saying is the growth is stunted. So thirdly, we have four principles. Here's number three or four foundational truths. The principles for excelling. I'm on the back of your outline now. The principles for excelling. What are the principles? What are the things I do to be able to excel in pleasing God and knowing God? Paul tells them you received instruction. That's the key word here from us on how to live your life and please God. So the power for excelling in spiritual progress only occurs When we follow the time-tested, God-approved principles that are defined in Scripture. Now, Paul had already instructed the Thessalonians on how they should live. He had already given them tons and tons of stuff. Whoop! Let me go here. I want to skip forward here. Here we go. The principles. Here are some things... That he had already taught them. And he says they were already doing, and he was telling them, You keep doing these things more and more in the power of the Lord Jesus because you love God. You don't do spiritual things to get brownie points from God, we do spiritual things because we love God. Now, you know, we live in the real world, we know sometimes it's a struggle, right? We know. That it's a struggle. We wrestle sometimes with motives uh, and with desires. But look at some of the things he told them. These are the things we should be doing. This is a checklist. Uh, and some of you are going to be thinking, right on. I got that. I got that. That's me. Who put my picture there. That's me. Yep, yep. And then we're going to scroll on. You're going to go, uh oh, oops, hurry, next slide. I don't want to see that one. Skip that one. Uh, but just use this as a checklist. These are all activities in the scriptures. That Paul had told the Thessalonians they should be doing out of a love for God and it would help keep them growing. Confess their sins regularly. To pray continually. To be humble in all things. Oh, it's getting harder now. Be content with God's will. Ooh, that's a tough one to be content with God's will. He tells him also seek God's will in God's word. Seek God's will in God's word, not in other places, not in worldly sources, worldly wisdom. Now, see, even harder be willing to suffer for the name of Christ, if it has to be. Kind of check yourself, use this as a checklist for yourself. Evangelize or witness to the lost. That is a command. Sometimes we Christian teach or treat the Christian life like it's multiple choice. Which do I want to do? Let me see. Fellowship meals? Definitely. You can count on me to be there. Uh, Bible study? That's good. Uh, witnessing to the lost? Hmm, not my gift. We'll let someone else do it. Nobody says you have to bring 10,000 people to salvation. The command is when you come in contact with an unbeliever and there's an opportunity, be willing to share what the scriptures say about Jesus. This next one, I'm just going to be totally honest. That's what you pay me for, right? At least for today. We'll see about next week. We are commanded to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the communion service. That is a command. The Lord Jesus said, this is mandatory for those who want to follow me. Communion is not optional. That's just the way it is. And I'll leave it at that because I'm getting some looks. Okay. move on. By the way, I don't want to be tried about that. But these are commands from the Lord Jesus. And they're important to him because he knows they will be important to us. There's a reason he commands us to do these things. He says to care for one another, to care for one another, take care of each other. He says to honor God in your marriage and in your family. Keep doing that. And he says, be diligent to serve, be diligent to serve in the church. If you're practicing these principles, Paul says to the Thessalonians, you're going to be growing In your walk with the Lord, you're going to be progressing. I don't know about you, but that's enough to keep me busy for the rest of my life right there. Just those 11 things. And I'm sure there's more because I see my deficiency in a lot of those areas. So I keep striving without being discouraged, knowing that the Christian walk is progressive. It's a lifetime endeavor. Lastly, the last principle, as we close this up today, there's the pressure. What puts the pressure or what is the motivation? What uh, moves us to progress in excelling in spiritual things? He says, for, you know, what commandments we gave you. Here's the pressure by the authority of the Lord Jesus. These things that we've read today, these things we've heard today, Are things that the Lord Jesus Himself has said to us. The Lord Jesus says to excel in your spiritual life. The Lord Jesus says not to settle for the spiritual status quo. The Lord Jesus says to continually grow in these areas. Spiritual growth is not instantaneous, it lasts a whole lifetime. 1 Corinthians nine verses 24 through 27. You know, those verses Paul's talking about how he doesn't box like someone who's just beating the air. But in his spiritual life, he disciplines his body. He actually makes it his slave so that he won't be disqualified as he's preaching to others. The self-sacrifice, the self-discipline needed, the exertion needed to be a Christian. We want it to be easy. That's just not the way it is. Commandments in First Thessalonians, chapter four, verse two, is a very strong word. It carries a military type overtone. He says commandments that we gave you by the authority of Jesus. It's as if it's a commanding officer giving strong authoritative directives to his subordinates. These are commandments. Obedience to scripture, obedience to the Lord is not optional. It's mandatory. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. So how do we do this, practically speaking? I'm not going to explain or exegete this verse, uh, but I just want to read it and just make mention. It's pretty self-explanatory. 3.18, 2 Corinthians But we all, with an unveiled face, look at the scriptures as if the scriptures were a mirror and we see the glory of the Lord Jesus in the scriptures. And then we are transformed by seeing Jesus in the scriptures. We are transformed into the same image of Christ from glory to glory. That's talking about stages, talk about progress, talking about growth, just as from the Lord, the spirit. So Paul's telling the Corinthians, when you study that context out, where do you find Jesus? You find him revealed in the Bible. And as you spend time with Jesus by being in the Bible, it will transform you and it will transform you and you'll grow and you'll grow and you'll grow in stages and you'll mature in your faith by being in the scriptures until one day in his presence will be fully perfect as we should be. So it's not an impossible task. So how do I know that I love God? How can I desire God if that's the key? Here's the first step, I think. Carol, I'm going to ask Carol to come on up. Dave, you don't know it, but you'll be leading a closing hymn. Uh, but listen, how do I know if I love God? How can I desire him? First of all, the very first step is to grasp that he Loves you. The only way that you can desire and love God is to grasp the fact that he loves you. Because the scriptures say what we love because he first loved us. One of our memory verses in Vacation Bible Club this week, Romans 5a. God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. You know what Paul's saying? Paul says, before you ever even knew who I was, before you even cared who I was, I died for you. I died to cover the penalty for your sins. He's saying, now that's love. You don't have to get yourself all cleaned up and get yourself ready to meet God. Because that's not even possible. But to love God and to desire God is to first realize how much he loves you. So much so that Jesus Christ comes takes your place, dies for your sins. There is no greater love than one man lay down his life for another. It's my meditation upon the love of God that increases my love for him. It's my meditation and my thinking at all times on Christ's sacrifice and Christ's love for me that then drives and motivates me to love God. Let's turn to hymn number 588, Dave. Hymn number 588, All for Jesus. Let's just sing the first three verses. One, two, and three. Uh, All for Jesus. Help us to want to please you. Help us to love you because we're imperfect in that. And we realize that to even love you, we need your help. Uh, We want to praise you and thank you for all your blessings, your goodnesses to us. Uh, May we meditate and ponder these words as your words uh, and Paul's authority as speaking for Jesus himself. Father, help us not to settle for the status quo. Help us to try to excel. Help us to be extraordinary Christians. Uh, Christians who are willing to sacrifice anything that gets in the way of us being pleasing to you. It's a it's a high calling, but we see that it's one that you expect from us. You didn't call us to follow you in a mediocre way. Uh, You called us to follow you in an extraordinary way. Please be with the team from Ohio as they go out today and the rest of the week. Keep them safe on the freeways. Father, give them many opportunities. To see Christ, uh, to see the lost and to see their own hearts uh, and to see our savior work in all three. Uh, Just thank you for our partnership with them and we send them out with our blessing. Uh, We leave here today giving you all the praise and the glory in Jesus name. Amen. Thanks for being here today. God bless you.